actually since I've been with Calvary, I've known that break that I think is so important. <laughs> it's become so pivotal. I've, every other church I've been a member of, it's just been every aspect of ministry has flown, and I, I find that there's just a, a beauty in that break. Um, that I think that's been can prepare us for what comes next. So I'm really grateful um, that nonetheless we can get together, we can gather, we can gather at homes, we can gather here, and um, again, we are privileged to do so. I've, um, in our kind of speeding through this series, in you know, and I, I, I must stress that the Gospel of Mark really does actually benefit from us kind of like being able to go from each, you know, subject. We're going, you know, 16 weeks through the whole book, and it, and it really marries well to that whole idea of just looking at the highlights of Jesus. Um, and so today I, 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 I have so much to go through, and I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm really privileged the fact that um, I, we could go long on this and then maybe get all those points, but I'm going to be really hopefully succinct, even though I've got quite lengthy notes, um, and really hopefully capture the meaning of, of Mark in this particular section. So I just want to jump in. I want to read, I want to pray, and then just kind of um, go through the text. So we are in Mark chapter 8, and we're in verse 27, and we're going to be reading right the way through to 9.33, I believe. 32, sorry, 9.32. So let us read, following whatever version you have, I'll be reading from the ESV. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took them, took with him Peter, James, at John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And they appeared to them, Elijah and with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And the cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking round, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. Until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things? 
and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran to him and greeted him, and they asked him, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son for you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately he convulsed. The boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out, and he said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him, convulsing him terribly, he came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And when they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Because it is your word. It is your gospel. It is your truth. It is the news that you had broadcast in the days, dear Lord God, of the apostles and have continued to broadcast today, Father, in, in our contemporary age. This is news for all ages. News for us, dear Lord God, that we should receive and believe because it is your word. We thank you, Lord, for the faithful account of your gospel. We thank you, dear Lord God, that you have prepared our hearts to believe and continue to believe, Lord God. And so even now as we labor to understand this text, labor to apply ourselves to this text, dear Lord, we pray that, Lord God, above that, dear Lord, we will labor to understand you, labor to get to know you. Father, we want to love your son the best way possible. We want our gratitude to live out there, Lord God, that commitment we have made to him. So we, we strive to understand so that we may know you and serve you better. And Lord, be a faithful witness in our generation. Help us, Lord God, for only you can. In Jesus' name. Amen. Today I've um, labeled my servant up the mountain and down into the valley. Have you ever noticed that how the high point of a story can make you dread what will come next? You know there's these points where you, you're reading a novel or you're watching a movie or, or a show and, and you kind of see that things are going so well that you kind of know that this can't go on. There is a turning point. Things look so good, you begin to imagine 
The story's about to change. In Mark's gospel, Jesus' transfiguration is the high point. And what I mean by the high point is that it's the point where, to some extent, it's the evidence that ultimately trumps all evidences. Mark is creating an apologia, an argument for the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Everything that comes as he goes down into the valley is, as he comes down that mountain, he's going into a valley. It's like going into the passion. We won't see another high point until Jesus is resurrected. You know, Mark has made his case that Jesus has transcended all Jewish expectations, but yet has somehow also fallen below their expectations. But this is mainly due to false preconceptions of what the Messiah will be. Surely this is the point. This encounter on the mount is when all faithful Israel will embrace him with open hearts and hands. As we look at the text, one of the benefits of kind of going at speed is that somehow you, you kind of see the narrative kind of blur. And you start to see the themes in a way that you don't quite see when you kind of go in there because you spent so long at one point that you, you, you tend to somehow forget the connections. Like listening to an, like an audio book at, at a slightly different speed it tends to give you a better, a better understanding of the overall flow of the story. And let me start at the beginning because, I, like I said, I've, I've got quite a bit I've written on this, but I, I think it's great if we follow. So the first section, um, in 8, 27 to 38, who do you say that I am? Well, it's quite easy to overlook how central this question is to the Christian faith. It's key. If, G if you get Jesus wrong, if you get this question wrong, you will get everything else which hinges on it wrong also. Today in our modern society, you might say a secular Westerner, like someone living in Europe or someone living in the United States and Canada, they might concede that he is a good moral teacher. I learned a lot from Jesus. He's a, he, he, he was a good man. He taught us how to love our enemies. That's really great stuff. Obviously, they, they pass over many of the other more conflicting teachings that judge their lifestyle, but they... You, you, you might get someone who can see that he is a good moral teacher. A good Muslim would concede that he is a prophet. But neither of these answers will save you. If Jesus is not the Messiah, the Son of God, then he is unable to save you. You can also say that people who fall into those lines of saying anything other than he is the son of God have failed to take him seriously and have failed to take him at his word. In the next section, in 8.31 to 33, it's amazing how we can be riding high one minute only to come crashing down to earth the next. However, often we do not know that we have crashed. Because at least with Peter, Jesus was there to correct him. There are times where Jesus or the Holy Spirit is unable to correct us. And we do not know that we have crashed. 
we do not know that we have made a misstep in our pronouncements. We must be cautious that what is given to us by revelation is not subverted or undermined by our human rationalizations. What came to Peter's mind when Jesus asked the question came from God, undoubtedly. Jesus says so. But what came after in this section was born from Peter's preconception of what a Davidic Messiah must be. We must be wary of correcting God. This is why I said the other day, we've got to be careful what spirits we listen to. We can say, oh, I'm, I'm all right, I can, you know, and like I said, we can go off the rails as Peter goes off the rails. But let's move swiftly on to 30, verses 34 to 38. What Jesus clarifies in this section is what he has bluntly stated in the previous one. In other words, it tends to go into detail. So Jesus openly rebukes Peter, but now he seems to unpack it. There is no point trying to make God fit into our boxes. Our box is that representation of what we believe, the circumference of what we believe God is. As I've said many times, we have to do our theology before we do our anthropology. In other words, we have to determine who God is, and then afterwards, we take the change. We take, well then, because this is who God is, this is, must be what, who, who I am. And the Enlightenment has reversed that order. I will do my anthropology. This is what it is to be man, and therefore, now... This is where God fits in. This is where that, for those of you who are familiar, open theism comes from. Well, God now has to fit in to my limited, finite world. And that's our box. To receive him is to give up any hope in ourselves and the misconceptions of what God must be. It's interesting here that Jesus also mentions the possibility that we may also be ashamed of him. It is no coincidence that Jesus is a hard sell, no matter what time or culture you live in. What does he say? This is a, a, an adulterous and a, you know, a perverse generation. That's us all, no matter what time we live in. Let me read an excerpt from 1 Corinthians 1, which I think is helpful. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand, demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. First Corinthians 21, 20-25. We are in danger of being ashamed of Christ when we try to present him to our communities in such a way that does not offend their sensibilities or subvert their values. Please note that I am not here recommending that we be insensitive in presenting the gospel under the pretense that it will offend anyway. That's not what I'm saying. But there is no point trying to make Jesus fit into the culture. Let's move swiftly on. 9, 1 to 13. The high point of Mark's 
um, account of Jesus. <coughs> this is the ultimate evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the, the Mount of Transfiguration. So this is up the mountain. So I take that, 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 first, chap, that first verse, and after six days, is related directly to verse 1. People debate it, and again, like I said, I give you my opinion that it is related. Sometimes you see it divided. Sometimes people kind of put it in a way so that it kind of marries with verse 8, with chapter 8. But then some of the translations put it where it marries more with chapter 9. That's just a decision. But I think that Mark is presenting the fact that, and after six days, is connected to chapter 1. The verse 1, sorry. So, the, so in, in verse 1, he, he, he introduces the promise and then presents the fulfillment in the very next verse. You know, some will argue that seeing Jesus in his glorified state is not the same as seeing the kingdom of God with power. In other words, they will argue, well, that's not really like the day of the Lord. And that sometimes, I think, is the error of rationalizing an act of faith. What do I mean by this? Well, Jesus is king now. But there is also the now and the not yet. In one sense, Jesus is already reigning within the hearts and the lives of believers. What people rationalize is that the not yet aspect of this reality... If Jesus is not on earth, ruling and reigning now, then they can't quite understand how this cannot be absolutely followed through now. Remember, I mean, those of you who are a little bit older, the kind of king's kid mentality? You know, we, we're the father, we're, 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 we're children of the king, and we can go and live and, 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 and claim what is already rightfully ours. You know, walk down to Mayfair, I claim this property, you know. I claim this Rolls Royce, I claim this Daimler, you know, whatever it is. That, that's what people did. Because again, it was this whole idea of, well, Jesus must be ruling or reigning now. If that's what it is, isn't it? That's modeling up that now and the not yet. We need to understand that we cannot make an inward reality into an outward one. In other words, if Jesus is truly king inwardly in our hearts, so Lord, as far as I'm concerned, yes, Boris Johnson is the prime minister uh, and the queen is the head of state, but ultimately I know that I am under your authority. And I render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but ultimately your heart is mine. Now, I can't make that into an outward reality where now all that is around me right now bows to that. There will come a time where Jesus says, I will make every knee bow. I cannot do that. So we have to allow God to do this in his time and not overstress the not yet. The high mountain. Now, we have to appreciate that the ancient world was not primitive in how they communicated supernatural phenomena. So you might hear that in this kind of more enlightened age that, you know, well, these guys were just explaining events that were basically beyond their preconceptions and that ultimately science has, um, has an answer for these things. And there's a, there's a purely material, a purely natural phenomenal understanding to this. But I like the way that this text words the fact that Jesus' transformation was not the result of a great wash or good reflection from the sun. The disciples relay in their communication that they knew that this was not a normal event. They knew no bleach could get 
garment to shine like that. It wasn't like Jesus was hiding a specially pre-washed garment behind and then flings it on and, 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 and gets out two of his friends that he hadn't introduced them to and says, look, this is a great and glorious thing. And we all go, oh yeah, it's great. These guys knew a, new, a, a, a supernatural phenomenon. And everything in the text describes it as such. In verses 4 to 8 now, we have that introduction of Moses and Elijah. This represents two persons who specifically, I believe, point to the Messiah. In Deuteronomy, Moses states this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. That means listen to. Also, it says this in Isaiah 40, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway of our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And also we have this in Malachi 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. See, normally commentators see these people as representations of the law and the prophets. So that's how they kind of say, yeah, oh, it's kind of like the law and the prophets and Jesus kind of sits with them. But I believe that Mark is recalling this event to use them as literal signposts to the messianic figure. That it's not simply that, oh, the, the, you know, there's the law and the prophets and Jesus kind of sits with them. It's because they point to Jesus. This becomes clearer when you see when you come to verse 7, when the father also adds his voice to the point and, and points to Jesus as the Messiah. And he says, listen to him, which is exactly what Moses says. Which also echoes what Moses says is an announcement to the Messiah. You cannot have a more blatant, ta-da, moment. What more can we say about this event? Well, we must not overlook the description of disciples being terrified. Again, another pointer to the fact that it was an extraordinary event. This word is loaded. It's a loaded one that also points to this being an extraordinary event. Hence the fearful response from Peter. It is also worth mentioning here how shocking it is to be in the presence of God. Just as we witness in Exodus... When the children of Israel came to Mount Sinai, it is a terrifying experience to be in the presence of God, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us. I haven't written it, but I, I had a little story of this because I, like I said, I'm an illustrator as well. And I remember in my, in my first church, well, the first church I got saved in, I, um, there was another artist there who did Christian art. And when he kind of looked at my art, which was like these terrifying images of angels and, you know, and, you know, big terrifying fights between angels and demons and stuff like that. He said, people don't want that. You need, you know, he had like waterfalls and, you know, pleasant pictures of children. At the and, you know, <laughs> and it was to this kind of stuff I was like going, brother, being in the presence of God is also terrifying. It's not just this, you know, waterfalls. You know, but I guess two of a trade don't agree, right? <laughs> and so the Lord knows he, you know, he needed it. Was, it was, strange enough, he was more successful than me. He made more money out of it. So there you go. You know, people want waterfalls. They don't want terrifying images of angels. But that was, just a, that was just one of those things. But I guess to some extent, as we approach a text, we see what we need to see. And I guess I'm covering that ground that he doesn't. Hebrews 12 reminds us of how terrifying the presence of the Lord is, isn't it? 
um, it says this, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrified was the sight that Moses says, I tremble with fear. So we can't take that terrifying image of what it must have been like to be in the presence of the glorified Son of Man. And then hearing that voice, listen to him. You know, we need to make sure we're reading the whole word and, and, get, and grasping what it would have been like. Verses 9 to 13, it is most likely true that Jesus forbids his disciples to speak about certain aspects of his ministry because he wants to maintain a break, and this is an hypothesis, but I think it's a good one, on gaining more supporters who would protect him as a popular leader. You know, we live in an age where people like Trump, um, they want to get, you know, there is no such thing as bad press. Anything that kind of points to, you know, every, you know, Twitter, bam, 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 every single day. And, and most people who want to make a name for themselves, they, they want to hit social media hard. I want to get everything out there. But what you have throughout the Gospels is what we call the, is what, you know, commentators call the divine secret. The fact that Jesus is constantly telling people, don't say anything. He's not trying to get that kind of press. He's not trying to rile the people up in such a way so that they will try to, they'll raise him up as another popular leader. Again, we have to remember the times we were living in, there were many people claiming messiahship. And Jesus probably saw, just as everybody else, what these guys did. They got bigged up and then eventually Rome will come, remove them, and then the next guy will come. But there would always be some kind of a struggle. And Jesus didn't want that type of popular movement. So he puts the brakes on. Don't tell anybody. There is also a sense of timing at play here as he puts a suitable time in which the events could be broadcast. As we find in the following clause, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. That's the time you want to tell them. That's the time you want to give the proof. When I'm, not, when I'm no longer in the way. When they can no longer subvert my ministry into what they want it to be. When they have to accept me on faith. We must identify with the disciples here and not exploit our privilege as readers of past events. When you consider how dramatic this event was in the revealing a glorified Christ, it would be hard to reconcile this to a person who could die, willingly or unwillingly. So when they say, when he's saying, as he's coming down and saying, I will die, he's like saying, I've just seen you as some kind of supernatural figure. How can you die? We need to be, we need to sit in that sense. We've, when we've just seen it and you're trying to tell me you're going to die, I've seen what you're like. You're not a normal man. Even if you were willing to die, how do you kill you? <laughs> and again, these things come. Again, as we skip through, we, 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 see how, we start to see how the text marries, how their world really becomes, it, this really becomes a struggle for them. Jesus rounds off this section by clarifying why the Messiah is preceded by Elijah. His first highlights that John the Baptist is that prophet figure who laid a path for Israel to receive the salvific work of the Messiah. We learned this in the opening chapter of Mark, didn't we? You know, Pastor Reed covered that beautifully, that whole idea of the repentance being so central. That there was no point laying that ground without Israel itself saying that it's not because you're Abraham's seed that you're going to be saved, you know. It's through repentance. It's through saying, actually, I've, I'm wrong. I've done God wrong. By the preaching of repentance, 
um, to Israel, he was restoring them back in humility to their true need. Which was not freedom from Rome or Greece or Persia or Babylon, but to God. Without that repentance, there could not be a new kingdom. Jesus goes on to mention that the suffering of him and John would make, would mark out his rejection by Israel. But this also will fulfill the redemptive work of the Messiah. So even though they will reject that message, it will, as it were, propel that ministry into its most effective power. From verse 14 to 29 in chapter 9, we now go into the valley as they're coming down that mountain. Coming to the bottom of the mountain, Jesus and his disciples um, come crashing down back into reality. The scene of the glories of heaven have now been left behind for the woes of mankind. A stir has been created by a failed exorcism. We read back in Luke 10, 1 to 23, how the disciples had a role in extending the ministry of Jesus to the masses. The sending out of the 70. Go out and, 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 and do what I'm doing, basically. Jesus gives them power to do so. And it would appear that the people were accustomed to coming to them for help if Jesus was not present. The Father had already tried the disciples. And he had failed. Firstly, let us look at the healing of the father. The healing the father seeks for his son. We are to be cautious here that on the surf, what on the surface looks like a condition similar to epilepsy, should not, however, be compared with and referred to as demon possession in all epileptic cases. There's no point you going and saying, you know, when, when someone says, oh, you know, I'm suffering with epilepsy. You said, oh, man, that's, that's demon possession, you know. Please, don't. Let's be cautious. Let's be wise. The father, I believe, represents a typical believer who is caught between the now and the not yet. There is a lot we should take time to consider in the father's answer when he's asked if he believes. He's actually, Jesus actually frames it as a statement, but the father jumps on it. And he says, I believe. But help my unbelief. And I believe Jesus intended for him to do that. He says this statement as maybe he was turning away from the man, and the man says, I believe. To regain Jesus' attention. There is a degree of wisdom in not being too bold in declaring our unwavering faith in God. We don't want to be like Peter, right? As this father thinks about all he has heard about Jesus, he finds it impossible to believe that his son's healing is beyond his capabilities. Hence, I believe. For example, he has taken the, he's, taken the, he's taken the time to bring his son to Jesus. Huh? That shows something, right? It demonstrates something. Yet, he has only known disappointment. Why should he expect this situation to change? Knowing the finished work of Christ in the now and the not yet puts us in a similar position to this father. We know that the power of Jesus is indeed capable to do all things, yet we cannot presume that it is, that it is his will to do whatever we please. This man will not be an ideal word of faith movement model. But yet he is the ideal role model for the humility of true believers who do not take God for granted. I like this. 
excerpt from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from C.S. Lewis as uh, Lucy meets the beavers. Let me read it to you. Is he quite safe? Speaking about Aslan. I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. There's an aspect of the fact that you're still standing before a king. We're, we're, we're there, not, as it were, in control of him. He is not safe. And we presume nothing. Except grace alone. And however he chooses to implement it. It's not helpful to think of Jesus as some benevolent, benevolent grandfather with his pack of sweets in his cardigan pocket, ready to grant every whim. You know, that's the, that's the, that's the privilege of grandparents, right? <laughs> All the pleasure of seeing young children, but none of the responsibility. Or maybe partial the responsibility. Let me just spoil you. Finally, why should the disciples, why, why couldn't the disciples cast out the demon? Well, a simple answer is, and I think maybe the best answer is, a life of prayer and fasting suggests that ministry cannot be approached in a casual sense. God gives us gifts and talents, but that does not mean that we should rest on them and not strive to be better at what we are committed to. After all, even the best musicians and athletes still need to practice, right? So it's not about sitting there saying, well, you know, I've got this gift and I'm just going to go out there and preach. I mean, we have to live a life that is perfecting the gifts and the talents that God has given us. You know, even when we, you know, whatever professions we might be in, we, you know, we've got to continue to read, right? I mean, there's a, there's a wide application. You know, you're there, maybe you're in um, accounting and you're thinking, you know, oh, I'm going to, you know, run on everything I learned from accounting from 20 years ago. You know, you've got to keep up to date. And that's what I believe this is. It's about keeping ourselves up to date, keeping ourselves plugged in. What's new? What's current? The last section I will comment in my application. No, last few verses. And... So how do we apply this? So often our best moments are closely followed by our worst. As we see in our text today, disciples can be firing on all cylinders one minute only to walk into a complete and utter failure the next. How much can we identify with them? Let me remind you. Peter confesses correctly that Jesus is Christ, the Messiah, and then denies the path that will lead him to fulfill this ministry. Peter, James, and John are led up the mountain to witness the new work of God in Christ as the Son of Man coming in glory, as Daniel shows us, only to then offer to erect new tents in which to house the divine glory, like God is reinstituting Judaism again. The disciples come down the mountain having witnessed the most profound revelation of Jesus in power and glory only to come and witness the impotence of the disciples to heal a boy in dire straits. It's that mountain experience and then that valley experience right next to one another. I've yet to make any in-depth commentary on the fact that throughout this section of scripture, Jesus makes three direct comments on his impending suffering, as witnessed in chapter 8, verse 31, 
chapter 9, verse 12, and chapter 9, verse 31. We must give the disciples here grace because we can often be prideful with the benefit of hindsight. They had centuries of distorted hopes for a Messiah like David, but we have had the scriptures with the full revelation of God for two millennia, yet we can often misjudge Christ and only see him from the spirit of our own age. If we are honest with ourselves, we will notice that our frustrations and disappointments with Christianity are often born out of our misconceptions of Christ as we see a crown but no cross. We ride high in God uh, when God is manifesting his power through us, but feeling low when he takes us through times of suffering. We tend to think that God is inconsistent, but that's not the truth. We want the good days to keep on rolling, but it's confusing the now with the not yet. The times when we are most confused should be the times we need to pray in faith. Nine, chapter 9.32 says this, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. No doubt the disciples felt burnt every time they got something wrong. But because Jesus left them in the dark, but Jesus never left them in the dark. He constantly pointed towards the cross, as we see in our text today. Every, you know, throughout this thing, he said those, those three interjections, the cross is coming. The cross is coming. The cross is coming. Like I said, there are reasons why they might misunderstand this. And we have to be careful that we might misunderstand it as well. In our personal relationships, we can feel that someone has switched on us when we tread into a sensitive area. However, the clues are often right in front of our eyes. But we have chosen to ignore them in favor of our own fantasies. How many times I've heard people say, you know, oh, you know, my spouse has switched on me. They, you know, they, they presented themselves in some way. And I always say, there was, the evidence was always there. You just weren't listening. Like in our text today, those, those, those single little verses were telling you what's coming. And you chose not to listen. We've got to be careful that we are truly listening to those smaller clues that often reveal bigger truths. My prayer is that we will be willing to follow Jesus up to the mountain and down into the valleys. And as the psalmist says, please recite with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. This is your gospel. This is your good news to us. Lord, you have given us a path that will take us, Father, to mountain peaks, great moments where we are riding high with you, Lord, living in your revelation, living in the, 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 the revealed glory of who you are, Lord. And, and those are so great. They're such great moments, and Lord, and you do not deny them to us who seek you in faith. But Lord, like the psalmist says, you also lead us into the valley. You also lead us into difficult places. 
But the psalmist remembers, even as Jesus encourages us to remember that I will also be with you even unto the end of the age. Those valley experiences there, Lord, those difficult times, those times of suffering are not because you're inconsistent. Just as we're following this gospel through there, Lord God, we, you know, you are there walking us through those good, those good times and those bad times. But Lord, those bad times are not inconsequential. They are teaching us something. They are as beneficial to us as those riding high moments. And Lord, those may be even the best teaching moments because our pride has been defeated. And we're prepared to listen. And even as the Apostle Paul was reminded that, Lord, when we are weak, you are strong. So help us to redefine ourselves, dear Lord God, in, 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 in the fact that, Lord, you lead us through all these situations. Lord, I pray that we will listen to your spirit. If we have made a misstep, if we, may, we are making misconceptions of who you are and what you should be doing in our lives right now, then allow us, dear Lord God, to hear your voice, to speak to us, dear Lord God. But Lord, above all, I thank you that, Lord, you are with us. And I've chosen, dear Lord, that you will not forsake your church, even in this difficult season, dear Lord God. For those of us at home, you're with them. Those who have had a real hard time, Lord, you're with them. And Lord, we are thankful that the gospel is not restrained, no matter where we are. So have your way in us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.